and welcome to the Busyness Podcast. My name is Emily Austin. I'm the founder and CEO of a London-based PR agency called Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses and have been fortunate enough in my 13-year career to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my business when I was 22 years old, fresh out of university. Since that time, the world has got louder. Our expectations have become greater and our lives have become busier. Fobbing friends off with the stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm so busy, is an attempt to compel, conflate and convince. But when did being too busy become a mark of status? Why is the goal to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? Are we setting unrealistic expectations for future entrepreneurs and business owners by encouraging them that a maniacal approach to diarising is the standard? This podcast aims to give you a realistic, detailed insight into the honest stories, the failures, the triumphs, the intricacies, the mistakes, the comebacks, the fuck-ups from those set to make their mark, the leaders, movers and shakers, trailblazers and game changers. We cover imposter syndrome, hiring and firing, call-out culture, anxiety, global growth, daily routines and knowing when to quit, choosing the best in the busyness to help you cut through the noise and optimise your success. Jessica Mason launched Piglet in 2017, following an impressive career in PR and marketing, working with global brands such as Nike, Ray-Ban and Aesop. She chatted to me about having the opportunity to look under the hood and see what really excites customers. We talked about learning the ropes on other people's checkbooks and how to spot a gap in the market and why unrealistic versions of home life spurred her on to create Piglet. We talked about how to avoid being sucked into the Instagram perception of what a founder should look and act like, the practical steps that Jessica took to launch the business, and why her first employee was her mum. Jessica currently lives in New York, having moved there to support the growth of the business. Her perspective is refreshingly normal and unfrilly, and I hope you enjoy listening to her business story. I'd love if you could just start by telling me more uh, about what Piglet is and what the brand mission is. Absolutely. So Piglet is a uh, direct-to-consumer homewares brand, and we focus especially on um, natural bedding and sleepwear and all kinds of products that are kind of derived from nature but will make you feel really comfortable at home. And what were you doing before you came up with the brand? Because you launched in... January 2017 is that correct so not not that long ago what was happening in the years before that so I had always worked in uh, PR and marketing for a whole bunch of different brands um, for about a year after uni I was in London and then the rest of the time um, I was in Dubai so worked for a whole bunch of different brands in Dubai quite a lot of PR was very interested in what was going on with kind of e-commerce brands and direct-to-consumer brands, seeing the types of brands who were building really meaningful relationships with their customers, particularly through Instagram, and this kind of change in the way that brands were really communicating with customers and taking on board much more customer feedback, making the consumers much more part of that brand journey. Um, So I was kind of 
you know, had spent all this time working with probably slightly more traditional brands and learning a lot from them, but keeping an eye on what was going on, uh, you know, with the brands, the likes of kind of Glossier, Outdoor Voices, people like that. Um, and so I was waiting for the time to kind of take the plunge and, and do it myself. And would you say that your experience in PR and, and or marketing exposed you to multiple different brands so you could almost begin to stress test well that works that didn't was that quite integral to you beginning to distill what would then become this idea yeah fully and I think I mean I worked for the the Australian beauty brand Aesop um really right at the beginning of my career sort of you know just in a junior role really early on and I think working with them influenced me a lot in terms of you know how how do you build a company where the ethos of what the brand is all about filters down through everything that you do um and so I learned a lot from them and then I kind of went and worked with brands uh, like Nike and Ray-Ban and kind of bigger consumer brands um and was interested you know in in how they do everything and kind of wanted to really look under the hood and see how the whole thing worked I think what I'd probably learned the most was just a real understanding of you know how do you get to know your customer base and how do you understand what really excites them what makes them tick what other things outside of your products are they going to be interested in and how does that influence the way in which you know you kind of build a relationship with them and all of those brands do it so differently so it was good good to learn from them and why this category because I think interestingly I've spoken to lots of different people and my presumption was that everyone would say you know I I had a real need for this and it was very specifically a sort of passion of mine or an inconvenience of mine. But actually what a lot of people have said is on balance, on reviewing the market, this seemed like the category that I could impact. What was that uh, What was that sort of experience for you? Yeah, I think I think the version of the story that, that founders sometimes tell, you know, potential investors or, or tell the press is often, you know, this desperate need that you had for bedding or you know, whatever it was. Um, the truth is, I, you know, I really love interiors and I really love homewares. It's a product category I was excited about. Um, but it was, I think, a case of looking at trends that were happening in the market. You know, I was paying close attention to this shift towards more sustainably sourced materials um, and how, you know, that was going to be around for, for a while and was a trend that was here to stay. Um, I started, you know, really thinking about these different product categories and the fundamentals of how they work. And with bedding, it was a really great category in a lot of ways where it was pretty easy to store and to ship. The returns are low, um, you know, I was able to start with a very small collection. You know, we had at the beginning, it was just duvet covers and pillowcases in two sizes and three colors and could kind of build a brand just around this tiny order of product. Um, whereas I think if I'd gone into something kind of more apparel based, um, you know, I would have had to build out a much wider range and invested a lot more upfront. So in a lot of ways, it was just a really handy product to start with. And then it also happened to be something I liked and was excited about um, you know, and, and really liked the look of, of linen and felt like it fitted very well with this kind of ethos for the brand that was, I think, a move away from a very top-down approach to, to homewares. And this idea that, you know, brands were going to tell shoppers, and in particular women, what their home should look like and how they should behave in their home. And, you know, it should always be immaculate and 
your children should always be smiling and perfectly dressed. And, you know, this this version of, of a home life, which I don't think resonated very much anymore with our generation. And we wanted something that was going to be more authentic, more real. You know, none of us were going home and spending hours ironing our sheets and to have a brand that, that worked for that and that kind of acknowledged that and said, actually, you know what, you can do all the things that you want to do in the rest of your life and still have a beautiful home. Um, and if you don't want to make your bed, that's fine too. <laughs> you know, that's not, it's not, I don't think the job of a brand to kind of dictate how people should be living in their homes. And I think funnily enough, linen ended up being this perfect material to represent that because it is so perfectly imperfect. And it's interesting what you say about the perception of how people are supposed to have it together at home in terms of these like incredibly beautiful symmetrical rooms, perfectly um, iron sheets. Do you think that that's also something that's represented in the way that we perceive entrepreneurs on social media and through press articles that there's this pressure to be, you know, having this fabulous home life, earning loads of money, running a half marathon, having a stable relationship, knowing lots of other entrepreneurs, being well connected, you know, having a blow dry, being in a magazine. Do you think that in your experience of going from an employee to then being an entrepreneur, founder, having your own business, do you think that the expectations you had of that were were realistic or was it different to, to what you had expected it to be? I think... I think there's definitely truth in that. I think a lot of the the types of profiles you read of founders in magazines are, you know, people want to know how are you managing this perfect family life and looking wonderful and eating healthily whilst also building up this big business. Um, personally, I think I've stayed clear of that in a lot of ways and haven't got sort of too sucked into it. It helps that... Um, you know, when I first started the business, I moved home with my mum in Sussex as a way of saving money and kind of just keeping my head down whilst whilst getting started with the business. And so, you know, we were just living a very kind of country life whilst getting the business off the ground. And it was you know, far from glamorous, but lovely and walking the dog between shipping orders and making Facebook ads and things. And then spent a little bit of time living in London when the business started to take off, but then pretty quickly moved out to the US where I am now, um, where I live with my fiance, Patrick. And, you know, so my experience of running the business has mostly been in places where nobody knows what the business is. You know, we're, we're, the brand name is a lot smaller in the US. Um, and we just kind of, you know, get on, get on with life and, not spending a lot of time kind of meeting other founders at Soho House and, and living that whole life. And I think if I was, I'd probably get much more sucked into thinking about what it means to be a founder and what you're meant to behave and look like. You mentioned that you were closely looking at the this space specifically, but also with your previous experience, just generally being connected to sort of what was going on. Where else did you get your information from when you when you when you launched the business? What was sort of the practical steps that you took to actually create what is now Piglet? Yeah, so I would say you know for years before starting the business, it was really just following these types of brands on Instagram and and seeing what they were doing and kind of getting an idea of of how they were marketing themselves differently. Um, 
probably one of the most impactful things I did was a couple of years in a row before starting the business, I went to Austin to South by Southwest to the kind of tech conference there and saw a few different people who really kind of inspired me to, to get started. Um, saw um, Tyler Haney, the founder of Outdoor Voices, talk and she seemed, you know, I mean, very, very real and natural and you know I think probably you know very focused on keeping her head down and getting on with the business um Whitney Wolf from Bumble also you know was really impressive and definitely just sort of sitting there in the audience thinking for the first time in my life okay this is who I want to be you know this is these are people who are really inspiring seem to have a job that sounds you know fantastically interesting and varied and was very motivating um I think then in terms of a kind of getting started and actual practical steps. One of the things that I found the most useful to know about was all the Facebook and Instagram advertising side of things. Um, Facebook has a really good program called Blueprint, which just teaches you, you know, everything that you need to know about running your own ad campaigns. And I kind of think that like any kind of founder, even if in the future, you know, fairly early, you think you're likely to bring on an agency or to, you know, bring on a marketing person to, to build those campaigns, um, I think in the world of e-com now, you, you have to know it inside and out, whether or not it's directly your job. So I'd say that's that's probably a really good place to start. Did you feel out of your depth at all at the beginning? Was it was it a bit of a baptism of fire and you were just busy and seeing if it worked? Or had you heaped on a lot of pressure, like I've moved home, I've quit my job, I'm setting this up? What was your experience like in the first sort of six six months figuring all that out? I think I've actually, I think I had a really easy run of it in some ways, because what I did when I moved home from Dubai, I um, first spent a year doing a, a master's degree in digital media management and learned a reasonable amount from the degree. But I think the biggest thing that it gave me was this kind of buffer between my work life and then starting the business. So I'd already kind of given up on, you know, I hadn't had a salary for a year. I was already getting through my savings and things. Um, I was able to start a lot of the research around the business and things like that whilst also studying, which kind of gave me this safety blanket of, you know, if this doesn't go anywhere, then at least I'm getting this master's. And so there was this kind of easing in to, to what the business meant. And it was a little bit, little bit easier, I think, from that side. Definitely hugely out of my depth in all sorts of areas. I think one of the first real, you know, wake up calls was when we were trying to get our first delivery of stock, you know, to be delivered and working out, you know, all of the paperwork that's involved, all of this terminology that I'd never heard before. Like I was fairly comfortable with the marketing side of things, but everything operational was completely new. So yeah, definitely, definitely out of my depth. But I think the fact that we started very small and just had this you know, just a few products to sell, a small amount of stock to, 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 to be selling right at the beginning definitely made it less terrifying. Who was your first big hire or, or which role was your first big hire? Probably not, not an official hire, but my mother was the first person who got, who got roped in full time and she had just recently retired. You know, she could see me struggling to keep up with orders and get them sent out. And so she is just the type of person who can't help but get involved when she sees that something needs doing. Um, so she started helping me out with that. Eventually, she was the one to find our first fulfillment centre, hire and train our fulfillment team. You know, she's ended up doing loads in the business. Um, 
and being a massive, massive help. Uh, I would say after that, one of our most significant hires or people that we brought on board is our CFO, Axel, who came on board, um, you know, probably around, we st- he started working with me around six months in um, and then got more fully full-time involved after about the first year. Uh, and, you know, really is more of a co-founder who I bounce all my ideas off and who is, you know, very, very important part of the business. Tell me about the decision to move to the US. Was that always in the plan? Was it very obvious that for expansion you needed to be there? Or and and did it feel like a big move? We had been, you know, making sales to the US from right from the beginning and just from orders coming in organically through Instagram. We weren't doing very much in terms of kind of customer acquisition for the US. But we're seeing, you know, that there was always about five to ten percent of, of our business was in the US despite not doing very much to to drum up that business so it always felt like there was a big opportunity here if we could get it right and we're looking at the numbers and just realizing that in order for us to scale here it really made more sense for us to have some kind of a fulfillment operation in the US uh, and for us to be able to offer free returns and, and things like that so we always had our eye on the opportunity that was here and just the size of the market um but it was sped up a little bit when I got engaged to an American and wanted to be spending more time here as well. And, you know, we kind of decided, Axel and I sat down and had a conversation about it and said, okay, well, let's let's take this opportunity. I'm going to be out there quite a lot. It's a good time for us to set up a fulfillment center, hire a team out there, get them trained. So uh, it all kind of fell together really nicely. And once we had that fulfillment center set up, we were able to really ramp up advertising and start scaling the business in the US. Um, and it's been it's been really good so far. I definitely didn't think that I would be, you know, the plan was always to go back and forth a lot more than I have done. But, but COVID started not long after I got here. So I've been kind of stuck here for the last couple of years and hoping to uh, make more trips back to the UK soon. Tell me more about what was happening for direct consumer brands around 2017, because you were keen to be DTC when you started. What's been really interesting, particularly in the interior sector, is a dusting off of quite ordinary categories. So we've seen it with lick and paint. We've seen it with, um, you know, wallpaper brands, blinds, etc., what were the trends that you were noticing that led you to to Piglet? It's true, you know, we weren't we weren't super early to the game, but we're early enough that I didn't feel like we were we were too late and just leaping on the bandwagon. Um, what what that meant was that you know this kind of formula for for a DTC brand had been pretty well established, and you know all parts of the tech stack had had been kind of created. So. You could go in and pretty quickly realize, okay, we need, who are we going to partner with for reviews? Who are we going to partner with for a loyalty program? What's going to be our messenger solution on site? You know, all of these sorts of things. And you could go through and and, and tick off all of the things that you needed as a business grew and became ready for, for each of those. So in a sense, like that was easier, you know, I think than, than, than people that came earlier. I think that we had a lot of those steps already already lined up and it was a case of choosing the best ones. And I think what that meant is that actually, I think brands that came a little bit before us are more likely to talk about themselves as tech companies. Um, and actually, I don't, you know, we're, we're not. We just had to pick pick our tech stack, use it well, 
get good at using the data that was available to us, but really then focus on customer experience and having the best possible communication with our customers, offer the best service, offer the best product, and not have to spend quite so long thinking about tech and digital because a lot of that work had, had already been had already been done. Um, so that was that was helpful in that sense. I think um, probably the brands that I was looking to the most weren't interiors brands. I think you know there was a lot happening around sort of beauty brands and fashion brands and and, and things like that. I think they were exceptionally good and quick at, at figuring out new ways to market to women that just resonated more meaningfully with us. Uh, so I was probably paying a bit more attention to them, but you're right that, that since then, or, or meanwhile, you know, while, whilst I've been at it, there have been some really great brands that have come out to really shake things up in the in the homewares and interiors category. It's very difficult to talk to you about business without mentioning COVID. I know it's become a bit of a, a bit of a buzzword, but can you tell me a bit, I guess, professionally and personally running a business, what, what the last 18 months has been like for you? Yeah, absolutely. So we, you know, we, we were growing pretty fast before COVID. Um, but this definitely, you know, sped things up a lot. It was funny now, you know, looking back, I was having crisis calls with our CFO Axel about, you know, we just received all of this big delivery of stock just before COVID. And we thought, what are we going to do? How are we going to offload this? You know, there's, we're going to have to, you know, get rid of it all to discount sites and things like that. And we immediately went on sale, you know, that we really didn't anticipate. And in retrospect, it was very silly, you know, obviously homewares would would go up, but it felt like the economy was going to come crashing down and that nobody was going to be buying anything. Um, And so as, as it happened, sales really spiked um and our challenges became much more to do with operational complexities of trying to get enough stock into the country fast enough trying to keep a fulfillment center going with an in-house you know an in-person team you know it ended up being those things that that, that were really challenging and not so much uh, customer acquisition which was something that had been our focus before then it's been uh, like a jump start in a sense to the business. We know we were, we were we were growing nicely, but we were much 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 smaller, um, and it's kind of propelled us to this new level of of growth, and has opened a lot of doors across the board. We had you know we were approached by John Lewis, approached by Selfridges, uh, started having investors who were interested, and you know that has consequently opened a lot of other doors. So yeah, it's it's. It's changed the nature of the business a lot. It's helped us to grow a lot faster than we had originally planned, um, but it's definitely been very complicated and difficult operationally. In terms of attracting investors, so you've raised eight and a half million dollars in a round led by Active Partner. I want to ask about how and when you decided to do that. But first, if someone was listening to this who was trying to raise money, is it as straightforward as, we're investing, we want to return on our money, show us that? Or, or are there lots of other things that brands need to be thinking about when they're looking to raise money? I think that depends a lot on which investors you're going after. I think there's, uh, you know, there's all sorts. And I would say if you're looking for investment, think very hard first about what it is that you want from those investors and what kind of input you want. And is it just the money that you need? Or is it the advice and the the kind of more qualitative input as well 
um, what we found is that we had reached a level where it felt like there was this big opportunity for us to to grasp. And you know, we'd just come through COVID. We'd seen okay, people are very interested in buying these products in bigger quantities than we had anticipated. Um, but actually, we've got all of these new customers. We need more products to sell them. We need to expand what the brand really means. Um, we need to, you know, our website needs to be better and our all of these sort of things just need upgrading across the board. And we need some money to do that, but we also would really benefit from people with more industry experience to be able to, to guide us and to be able to show us what problems lurk behind the next corners. Um, we're a pretty young team and actually a lot of the kind of the early, you know, the, our, our initial team from the early days um, including myself and Axel, our CFO, we haven't worked in this kind of a business before. And so we've got good instincts, but we don't always know, you know, what what's what are industry standards, what what are better ways that we can be doing this, what are more cost-efficient ways that we can be doing this. And so we knew that we wanted to partner with with investors who were going to be able to offer quite a lot of advice and be quite actively involved. Um, we didn't realize that we with Active in particular, the, the due diligence process ahead of the investment is very extensive um, and was incredibly useful. You know, they, they, they got outside consultants to dig into all parts of the business um, and really reveal to us what was working well, how that compares to our competitors, where, what areas we still have a lot of room for improvement, um, which in itself is really exciting because you suddenly realise, oh, actually, we can, it's going quite well, but it could be going so much better. Um, so that was that was very important to us. And actually, I think the the because we're profitable and have been profitable since almost since day one, um, the actual financial investment came as a secondary part to that. One thing I would say, I mean, I think it depends very much on the different businesses and your unit economics and the different needs of the business, but we waited a long time. You know, we were over four years in by the time that we that we raised and I personally really like that as an approach. I feel like starting a little bit more slowly and really, really getting to know your products and your customers and, and even just doing customer service yourself for the first couple of years meant that I think that kind of we all in the team now know the business and know our customers in a very meaningful way. And if we'd grown a lot faster, we might have missed out on that. You mentioned that people buying more than you thought and also in quantity terms more than you thought. How does it work with your repeat purchases after you've acquired a customer? Because the thought process other than sort of gifts is once you've got everything you need as a customer, you know, you, you run out of bedrooms or bathrooms or, or places. Is, is, that, is there a demand for you to expand the product range or is it that that is the lifetime of a consumer and, and, that, and that's how you've built you sort of baked that into the business. Yeah, we have we have extremely loyal cons- customers who return a lot. Um, I think one thing where we got lucky was we always really thought of bedding as a little bit more of a fashion product and less of a utility product. So, you know, this the the traditional way of buying bedding might have been, you know, if you were moving house or or if your previous set had worn out or you know you were going off to university, something like that. That was the time that you bought bedding, and I think. With us, and particularly by using Instagram a lot, we've been able to to 
to show that you can dress your bedroom in lots of different ways and change it by season or if there's a new kind of trend color that comes in that you're really excited about um, it gives you an opportunity to buy more um, so that's been that's worked in our favor for sure but there is always a, a ceiling to how much bedding anyone can own you know and how much can can fit inside somebody's house so we do that was that was part of the rationale behind launching sleepwear and then and have gone on to to look at loungewear and other home textiles and rugs and cushions and curtains and all sorts of things like that so definitely our, our focus at the moment is on is on launching a lot more and being able to build out a much more in-depth home offering what you've created with the business is undoubtedly streets ahead of lots of other brands in the space how do you deal with competition for me, the way of dealing with competition is to work quite hard to ignore it. <laughs> and But then that does rely on having other people in the team who are keeping a close eye on things and making sure that we're, you know, doing things as well as everyone else or better or that, you know, somebody's got some great innovation in, in how to offer a really great service for our customers and we should know about it. But I think for my personal mental health and well-being I think it's it's it can be quite important not to pay too much attention I always think of um one of my favorite business books is Shoe Dog by Phil Knight and he talks about being in Portland and kind of being fairly out of the loop and just focusing on the business focusing on the business that he wanted to build what the products that he would want as a as a you know as an individual not just as a business owner um and not getting too caught up in what the competition are doing. And I actually think that that helps you to stay ahead and let other people follow you rather than the other way around. It's a delicate balance, isn't it? Because you want to use social media and, you know, et cetera, to be inspired and to see what's going on and look for potential collaborations. And it is important to see, as you say, you know, what other people are doing. So you know sort of where you are within that. But it, but it, you've got to be really disciplined to not go down a bit of a rabbit hole and then, you know, look at who they've hired and look at what they're doing and who are their partnerships with. And then you sort of, then if they've done something that you wish you'd done, that's annoying. Or they're in a fabulous article or speaking on a panel or they've done a design partnership. And I think I've definitely worked with businesses before where the focus has been far too much on what everyone else is doing. And it can be quite sort of, soul destroying for the founder do you do that by sort of keeping off social media or are you just disciplined that you're not sort of constantly googling what everyone else is doing I really really love this industry and I love a lot of brands in this industry and I think what I probably do is take most of my inspiration from other product categories and so you know if I'm seeing something really great on Everlane's website then I don't, you know, and I, and I think, oh, we might be able to do something similar in our site design. It's not so much a case of sticking within your sector and just sort of echoing back the same trends over and over again. So I think definitely be inspired, but maybe try and keep your feed a little free of too many direct competitors. Yeah, it's interesting what you said earlier about this era of people identifying as tech businesses, which I guess is the kind of like Adam Newman we were vibe where everyone wanted to jack up valuations. So you just said they were a tech company. Now you have startups sort of using Excel and claiming they're a tech company, um, which I think feels, you know, a little bit, bit less authentic. But it is interesting how in a lot of these categories that have been 
you know, yours included with what you're doing, sort of revolutionized in the way that we see them, they tend to straddle multiple areas. So to your point, you've got uh, a home product, but that kind of speaks very clearly to a fashion audience and this idea of seasonality and actually quite simply evolving and upgrading and updating your bedroom and giving people the capacity to do that. Similarly, um, you know, the, the kind of sleepwear category has has evolved has and is evolving, you know, too. And that's probably in tandem with the the sort of health trends about looking after ourselves a little bit more and doing things for ourselves and all that kind of stuff, being kinder to ourselves. But do you think that um if someone is launching a brand now, being so category specific is too niche when consumers are looking for multifunctional products. Is that something that would need to be a key part of a strategy for someone launching a brand now? Yeah, I think that's kind of the whole fun of the the DTC space is that you get to talk directly to your your customers and you get to really build a whole lifestyle offering. Um, You know, we do that with things like, you know, we might be selling bedding and pajamas, but we're really, really into our book club. Uh, you know, we don't have to sort of fit into the into the model that the department stores would have set for us previously. You know, they're not saying this is how you need to be presented and this is how you need to look and you can take up this much square meterage. You can kind of say, actually, we're going to do all sorts of different things. And, you know, if we want to start, want to launch a piglet recipe book, then maybe we would. Or, you know, it's you're just much more free to decide for yourselves, I think what the the lifestyle of your brand is all about can you do a bedtime stories book i would buy that (laughs) we sort of dipped our toes a little bit into the kids category and i think if you're going to do it you need to do it pretty fully you know you need to set yourself up as a destination that parents know to go to for kids things and i think we haven't done that fully enough well i guess if your audience is you know, I'm 31. I imagine it's probably at least sort of 25 to 35, maybe 25 to 40. So a lot of that audience will probably become parents. So I guess that that the sort of nature of their demands as a consumer base will evolve. Which you know, to your point earlier, it's so critical to be connected to what your customers are saying because you're evolving as they are and and knowing what products they want and need um, is kind of integral to 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 your decisions about what to what to bring out next. I think it can be. I think we were probably guilty of assuming that our customers were a bit more like us than we thought. And I think we all we all do that sometimes where and I think we, we were probably a little swayed by some of the data we see on Instagram. So if we look purely at our Instagram demographics, then, yeah, our customers seem a lot like me. They're sort of around my age and they're mostly women. And so a lot of our, our products and our thinking was, you know, what, what do I want? What, what kind of products would I like to see? And then as part of our, the due diligence of this fundraising round, we did a much more thorough customer survey and realized that actually our customers, like half of our customers are over 50, um, which were just a lot more varied in a lot of different ways than I had anticipated. And that's been so helpful to know. Um, and just to keep in mind, I think, as we launch new products. What are some of the most valuable investments you've made to scale the business and where have you wasted money? I'm really, really proud and pleased of how we've grown the team. We've had a pretty lean approach to, to team building and everyone wears a lot of different hats and that's worked really well for us. We've ended up with this team of people who are all pretty much able to answer customer emails 
if they needed to, or, you know, speak very confidently to the product or whatever it is. And I think that's because we've grown pretty gradually and, and had to bring on board people that would learn all of the business as it evolved. Um, I think that's been definitely our, our best investment. It's interesting now, you know, after having closed this fundraising round, we're hiring much more aggressively and um, spending a lot of time thinking about company culture and with a fully remote workforce. And we, we were remote before COVID and will be afterwards. So we you know, spend a lot of time thinking about what does our team look like as it grows? How do we make people still feel part of a team, still feel really motivated, despite the fact that we're not all together in person? Um, so that's something we're you know, looking at a lot and looking to invest more into. Um, I think, I don't know, when I think about ways that we've that we've wasted money, I think we were always, certainly before the investment, we had to be very, very lean with what we did. And that meant that we were careful and would do little experiments to, to try and try new things out. But they were luckily always fairly small. So... I don't know, one learning I would say just as an example is we did a we did a couple of years ago, maybe more now, two and a half years ago, um, we did a pop-up in Notting Hill, um, which was great and really beautiful and got us a lot of press. Uh, and so in a sense, it was a, a successful experiment because we learned that physical retail can be great to boost awareness it can be great to get press we had a really great press event we did sort of programming like yoga classes and stuff like that in in the store which was good good way to meet customers um but the actual store itself over the course of the pop-up probably just about broke even and i think from that we learned that i mean i think the shop was much too big for us and for where we were at that time in the brand we didn't really have that that many products um things like that you know some you know experiments along the way that might have we might have sunk a bit of money into but that we've definitely come away knowing a lot more about the business and that we can use in the future how important was sustainability for you when you launched and how have you navigated some of the challenges around logistics and costs uh, that, that surround the topic of sustainability our sort of starting off point was, was linen and that's a wonderfully sustainable material to farm. So that was always, you know, rooted into our very, very first products and everything followed on from that. It was very instinctive to avoid all plastic in our packaging, for instance. That was something that it just felt like it would have looked wrong to have this kind of lovely natural bedding getting sent out in plastic and everything kind of followed on from there in terms of the rest of our packaging, using recycled materials and, and things like that. I think probably the one area where, you know, there's room for improvement, certainly, is that we are still producing most of our products far from home. Um, so a lot, a lot is still coming from China. And I think as we now, you know, having closed this investment round and having a bit more flexibility in what we can do and, you know, doors opening to us in terms of other factories that we can work with, being a bit bigger now we can negotiate prices a bit better and things like that I think that's probably one of our big focuses is trying to shift a lot more production closer to home you know I think it's I think I'm very interested in what areas in what areas a brand can really make a difference and what areas are just get a lot of attention and so we're working at the moment um with a company um called B Zero who are measuring 
basically we give them every bit of data that we can for all of 2020 and it's where our products have come from who they've been sent to what our shipping times are like uh where are our team based who's driving to work you know what fridges are we using in the warehouse everything and they go off and they they quantify all of that they put it all together and they tell us what our carbon footprint for the year was and then provide advice and guidance on how we can reduce that um, and also ways that we can offset it to move towards carbon neutrality on one side I'm really excited to have that carbon neutral status but I'm also really excited to sort of dig into that data and find out what are big problems that we hadn't really thought about what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given about running a business I would say I would say to start small I think that we're at this phase where the barriers to entry are so low that if you want to launch a Shopify store and get some Facebook ads going, you can do that in a couple of weeks. And so start start with something small, get a sense of it, get a sense of who your customers are, get a sense of what you actually like, what products are interesting to you. Um, you know, and don't feel like it has to be this huge multi-million dollar DTC brand in the first year, because that's rarely, very rarely how things go down. Do you ever take time to enjoy your achievements? You know, the business is, what, four or five years old and it's already had huge success. You've also moved to another country, survived a pandemic, got engaged, lots, lots of stuff going on. Do you ever stop and say sort of well done to yourself or is that something that's challenging? Yeah, I'd say I, I, not not enough. Um, the problem is, is that, you know, as you're always focused on on the what the business is going to look like in six months time so as an example for the moment right at the, right at the moment I'm working a lot on our website redesign and we're doing we're preparing for a rebrand and so my mind is so rooted in what the business will look like that sometimes I'll get a bit disheartened if I see the current you know I see how things look now and I know they could look so much better and so you're always um you know you're always ahead or you're always working on what next year's sales figures are going to look like I'm hoping that that one way of doing that is to spend more time in person with the rest of the team because I'm so proud of what they've done and I'm so quick to congratulate them that I think, you know, taking the time and having team events and team parties and things like that every now and then is uh, a good way for us all to remember how far we've come. I guess it's a strange quality, isn't it? Because the drive and the ambition and the, the it's sort of at odds with the idea of, self-congratulating yeah I think it helps if you're always a little bit dissatisfied you know you always think that it could be better I think probably the day that you feel that you're well this is as good as I'm ever gonna get it and it looks perfect is probably the day to to hand over to somebody else what have you found to be the biggest myth or assumption about running a business um probably what we were discussing right at the beginning of our call about you know that there's any glamour to it really (laughs) I think you probably could do a lot more of you know attending the events and getting dressed up and doing things like that but it doesn't really help very much in growing the business and so really it's just about keeping your head down and and getting through the work and coming up with the ideas and in truth I find all of that stuff a lot more fun anyway so I'm, I'm not not unhappy with that how do you make sure that you keep learning? Do you listen to podcasts? You, you mentioned Phil Knight's book, um, which is which I've read and is also I agree with you. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, I think I mean I I love a good business biography and podcasts and things like that. I think 
the good thing about this particular industry is that it doesn't let you get away with not continuing to learn. You know, it's changing so fast and, you know, new technology is coming out all the time, new ways of using it. So, you know, if you want if you want to keep up, you've got to you've got to have an eye on what's going on. What's your definition of success? I think for me, you know, it really comes down to how you feel when you wake up on a Monday morning and how excited you are to start the day. I think, you know, I remember, it feels like a long time ago now, but I remember in previous jobs, which were all perfectly good jobs, you know, there was nothing wrong with it at all. Um, that kind of slight feeling of dread in my stomach of going into work. And I just think success for me means never feeling that way again, feeling excited about whatever it is I'm doing that day we talk about productivity we hear we see a lot of articles and books about how to be more productive if you can have an extra hour in the day what would you use it for so Axel who I've mentioned before our CFO he recently introduced me to transcendental meditation which wouldn't necessarily have been super up my street it's not I'm not like quite so into that stuff as he is and I was blown away by how impactful it is and how much more focused I am and how you know more connected I feel with people in my life like the the differences have have really surprised me um but I do find it difficult to fit into the day and so I am guilty of of skipping you're meant to do two 20 minute meditations a day and I rarely find the time to, to fit both in. So if I could have more time, I would definitely spend it on that. So tell me what's next for the business and what's next for you. Yeah, so we're, like I mentioned before, we're hiring a lot at the moment, which is fun. And bringing on board, you know, all of these real experts in different areas of the business, which we haven't had so much before. Um, and so it's, it's it's great for us to be learning from hires that are coming on board we're launching you know preparing in the new year to launch a lot of new product um and to launch the new website so as you know to accommodate a much bigger range of product um so really looking at how we take the core values of the business this idea of products rooted in nature sustainably sourced making you really comfortable at home and and developing that out into a much wider offering and you know, being able to reach all parts of the home and all ways that you spend time within it. The business is so exciting. I think so much of what you shared today is going to be incredibly helpful to lots of different people, starting all different types of businesses. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day. No, this is fantastic. Thank you. And thank you for the such thoughtful questions. Mm-hmm.